This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here to set you free. It takes it. It's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. We have two great guests joining us today, and I'm glad you're listening to us on radio, on stream, on podcast, and watching us on Twitter's Periscope, YouTube Live, and Facebook Live. Hey there. Hi there. I won't say ho there. I'm Leslie Marshall. Uh, first up uh, in the hour, somebody we haven't had on in a while. I adore him. Uh, Ian Milheiser is senior correspondent at Vox. Love Vox. I know when I get stuff from them, I don't have to fact check it. He focuses on the Supreme Court there, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. He's also author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. He previously clerked for Judge Eric L. Clay of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and he served as a Teach for America Corps member in the Mississippi Delta. Ian's handle on Twitter is at imilheiser, that's I-M-I-L-L-H-I. I-S-E-R. More than a pleasure to have Ian back in the house. Thank you for rejoining us. It's been far too long. Good to have you with us and be able to see you as well as to uh, to hear you. Thank you. It, for it, it has been way too long. Now, thanks so much for having me. Oh, definitely. Um, well, let's jump in uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, Amy Coney uh, Barrett hearings. You know, you had a, we had a lot of kumbaya moments at the end, right? Senator Cory Booker many. talking about the shared love of veganism by him and Senator Ted Cruz without masks. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Dianne Feinstein, who I thought my party was going to hang from the highest rafter yesterday, hugging it out. I, as an American, was glad to see civility and decorum, but were these um, hearings a failure, Ian? And I ask because, one, Senator Booker's right. The goose, goose is cooked. I mean, they had the votes, um, but I think it was important for Democrats to ask questions and let the Americans see what uh, American people see what they're getting or maybe not see what they're getting because she really didn't answer anything. But I really did want to throw up in my mouth a little when the Republicans were asking um, things like, who does the laundry at your house? And I'm screaming at the radio in my car because I wasn't home at that time. Um, I'm screaming at the radio in my car going, her housekeeper, <laughs> you yeah. know? which I'm sure she wouldn't answer in that manner because they would think she's elitist and certainly showing white privilege. Um, uh, so were the hearings a failure in your professional opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Supreme Court hearing as a whole is a failure. Like nominees have gotten better and better and better at sucking all the information out of the room whenever they're up for these confirmation hearings. And she was particularly good at sucking all the information out of that room. Um, now, that said, there just isn't a bunch of mystery there. So like 
One thing that we see time and time again when there's a Republican nominee is Democrats try to trick the nominee into saying, I will overrule Roe v. Wade, and the nominee is never tricked into saying that they will overrule Roe v. Wade. But this is a nominee who signed a statement pledging to oppose abortion rights. She has described, you know, she signed another statement describing Roe v. Wade as an infamous decision. So, like, it's not like there's a mystery to be solved here regarding how she feels about Roe v. Wade. You know, there's a lot of talk about how she'd approach Obamacare, but she wrote a book review about three years ago where she criticized both of the previous Supreme Court decisions upholding most of the Affordable Care Act. So again, like she wasn't tricked into revealing her views at the hearing, but so what? Like she's already expressed those views elsewhere. We know that they are very, very conservative. I didn't understand why nobody tried to tie being pro-life um, to the lives of those pictures of people that we saw paraded by the Democrats of, of those lives of people suffering. That as a woman who was pro-choice, and my cousin and I always talk about how people don't understand pro-choice doesn't mean pro-abortion. Pro-choice means it's your choice what right. to do with your body. You want to wear colored contacts that make you look like an alien. Your choice. You want to have breast implants. And I kid you not, I saw a woman the other day. I don't know how she didn't fall down. They were like out to here. <laughs> Her prerogative, not something I would choose, you know, um, uh, you know, wouldn't choose necessarily an abortion for myself. Not my body, not my choice. You want to get a vasectomy, you know, you want to get hair plugs, not my choice. Now, obviously, hair plugs are, are not the same as, you know, discussing, you know, when life begins and, right. you know, trimesters of birth. Um, but what bothers me, and I don't think Democrats harped enough on, um, are for people that claim to be pro-life, and she does, um, where that doesn't follow through when it comes to things like social programs to feed or provide health care for people who do have their children, education for those children who are born um, and, and maybe you're not born into a, an advantaged home uh, financially, um, any kind of a, a work program. And then, of course, the Affordable Care Act, right. um, because, look, um, are people on the Affordable Care Act, if they get kicked off, able to find a, another plan? We don't know because we don't know what the Republican plan is. We don't know what the replace would be if repealed. But we do know that people who are very sick with pre-existing conditions would have a very difficult time in the private sector obtaining um, you know, healthcare isn't their life valuable. It, you know, I mean, I, I know they can't ask her this, or I guess they could. Are you pro fetus? Are you pro life? Um, because if you're pro life, th that doesn't carry through with capital punishment. It certainly doesn't seem to carry through with healthcare or other social uh, issues. Immigration would be an issue where you know pro life carries through. And I would have, I would have preferred to see some tougher questioning from Democrats on that. Did the Democrats disappoint you? Because people yesterday were saying. Um, you know, I wish Democrats would fight. And people yeah. really were angry about Senator Feinstein's hug. I don't think the hug means she didn't fight. Then again, her fighting and attacking religion uh, of Amy Co uh, Coney Barrett in 2017 and the attack style of Brett Kavanaugh with Democrats didn't get us the Senate, us being the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some moments where I think that, you know, Feinstein, but other Democrats did not play this well. You know, there are moments when they praised Lindsey Graham for conducting a, you know, very well run hearing. And I guess within like the limited context of the hearing itself, I mean, like it was run in a fair way. But, you know, 
four years ago, we were told that it was completely inappropriate for Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court, to even get a hearing when we, when we were eight months from an election. And now we're less than three weeks from an election. So I don't think that Democrats played this, you know, as played their hand as well as they could have. Now, that said, I think what's probably going going on here is this. Democrats are winning this election right now, at least if you believe the polls, and they're winning by a lot. But we don't want people to know that, Ian. Yeah, yeah, of (laughs) of course. But, you know, like the polls right now show Biden 10 or 11 points up. And so the status quo, if you're like just thinking about the election, the status quo for Democrats are pretty good. And so they could have gone in there with a great big strategy to bruise up this nominee and make Republicans look really bad for it. And, you know, maybe that would work. But maybe it wouldn't like I mean, when the status quo is this good for Democrats, I understand. Yeah, I understand why they do, why they don't want to rock the boat. Spe- spe- speaking of abortion, is a very emotionally charged issue. There are one issue voters on both sides of this issue that will go out to vote based on being pro life and her possibly, most likely, being seated, uh, and those being pro choice and anger about the seating. Um, there are obviously opinions on both sides as to who her on the court benefits, and I'm not talking about. Uh, benefits uh, regarding, uh, you know, future uh, decisions uh, from the highest court, um, but uh, at voters. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what you say. I'm going to tell you my take. I think it benefits Democrats more because um, the, the, the pro-lifers or, you know, those who are Republican evangelicals who are pro-life, they already got their person. They already got their girl and they already got her seated. Whereas people outraged about that and the hypocrisy between you know, what happened to 26, uh, excuse me, what happened with uh, Merrick Garland and what happened, you know, with her and the other court vacancies that, you know, Republicans wouldn't allow Obama to fill and Trump has. Um, You know, I think it's actually going to get people who are, and the majority of people don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade, very high majority um, Mm -hmm. of Americans. The majority of Americans also consider themselves uh, pro-choice. So do you you think it's going to energize more of the voters on the left who would be the pro-choice folks or on the right who would be the pro-life folks to come out and vote for or against the president? So my biggest fear is that I think Republicans want this seat because they think if they can get it, elections won't matter anymore. You know, the Supreme Court has been chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, which is like the thing that protects us from racist voter discrimination in this country for many years now. They have a case in front of them right now that could potentially completely gut the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, the Republicans are increasingly a white nationalist party. The Democratic Party has a multiracial coalition. And so if you don't have protections ensuring that you can't disenfranchise someone because they're black or brown, I don't know that Democrats can compete at the national level. And so the thing that scares me here isn't that like, okay, maybe Roe v. Wade is overturned, but it's still fine for pro-choice people because voters rise up and we get, you know, laws protecting abortion. The fear is that it won't matter what the voters think anymore, because if the Supreme Court keeps chipping away at voting rights in the way that it has been, you know, elections start start to look rigged. Very good point. We're going to talk about that uh, more about uh, Ms. Barrett, and uh, we'll be back with our guest. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com.
We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with our guest, Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy here in the U.S. He's author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. He can be followed on Twitter at iMilheiser. Uh, Ian, thank you for holding uh, welcome back. Oh, um, sure thing. We're seeing more and more justices, Neil Gorsuch, uh, this uh, uh, woman, Ms. Barrett, um, who are originalist, and because mm-hmm. you carry uh, you you covered the Supreme Court, um, I was wondering if you could uh, just touch upon that um, for uh, our viewers and listeners who may hear the term but not fully understand what that means and why it's a good or a bad thing for our nation right. going forward on the heels of what you just said before the break. Yeah, so originalism is one of those things that if I just tell you the definition of it, it sounds obvious that you should be an originalist. So the the definition of originalism is that the Constitution has a fixed meaning and judges are bound by it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, should judges follow the text of the Constitution? Duh. Yes, of course they should. The, The problem is that the Constitution's really vague. You know, it refers to the privileges or immunities of citizenship, doesn't tell us what those are. It says that there ha- can't be unreasonable searches and seizures, doesn't tell us what's reasonable or unreasonable. It's just a really vague document. And so in practice, what originalism allows judges to do is it's a way of undercutting past precedents that they don't like. And there have been liberal originalists in the past. Justice Hugo Black used originalism to wipe out a bunch of decisions or to attack a bunch of decisions that undermine the government's ability to regulate the workplace. Justice Scalia used originalism to attack decisions like Roe. And, you know, Justice Thomas has gone so far as to say that he wants to bring back decisions saying that um, child labor laws are unconstitutional. You know, he so he wants to attack pretty much all of the 20th century through originalism. So originalism is one of those things that, you know, again, it sounds really smart, but it has less content than you than you'd think it does just from listening to the definition. And in practice, when I hear a judge tell me they're an originalist, I get nervous because in practice, the way that originalism functions is it's a way of saying, hey, like there's these past precedents. Normally, I'd have to follow them. But if I wrap myself in the Constitution and the framers, then I can say that I don't have to follow it. And, and speaking uh, to that, I mean, when questioned, Amy Coney Barrett Uh, did not include Roe v. Wade as a super precedent, uh, you know, where she did, you know, with other things. um, And and that is worrisome. Devil's advocate, I will play Mm -hmm. for a second, because somebody said to me, I thought it was a fair question, but I'm curious as to your answer. We already had a conservative leaning court with a conservative majority before the notorious RBG left this earth. Right. Um, why is it more of, and, and Roe v. Wade was not overturned, nor did that come up on the docket, any case um, that would uh, discuss that. Why is it more worrisome? Mm-hmm. Yes, this woman is replacing RBG, but she kind of is like a female, younger version of, uh, of Scalia. Yeah. So it's true that before she got there, there were already five votes who were pretty opposed to Roe v. Wade. Um, Last June, there was a case, it was called the June Medical Case, that was an abortion case. And the facts of that case were almost literally identical to another abortion case that the court had decided five years ago. Um, And what happened is that four justices said, well, we'll just ignore that case. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion where he said, look, 
I don't like abortion. I don't like the abortion decisions, but you can't send me the exact same case because like if I reach the opposite result in the exact same case, then like it's really obvious what we're up to here. So like, you know, I mean, he didn't say this explicitly, but basically the thrust of his opinion was do something different the next time. So, I mean, the punchline is Roe v. Wade was probably already doomed. I think that Barrett's confirmation means that that doom might come quicker. Um, and I think that you're just going to see that in a lot of areas where Robert is, is the sort of guy who, like, was very conservative but often wanted to move slowly and incrementally and, you know, do so in ways where it wasn't obvious that the court was just engaged in politics. And now that he's no longer the swing vote, it's not clear to me that there's a force within the court to say, like, let's, hey, let's just not do this all at once. Um, I... God, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, there, there's this belief, I think, by by some evangelicals who are not as educated on this, that if you get rid of Roe v. Wade, that will get rid of abortion. It doesn't. It just gets rid of, it, it'll just become legal in certain states. People will flock to California where I live and other blue states uh, to get abortions. But it goes back to prior to the 1950s, or prior to 1973, yeah. technically, um, but harkens back to those days when you know women were dying in black in back alleys who you know were you know getting uh, abortions with coat hangers that were or unsterilized tools by people that were not medical professionals, um, and that will happen again in red states. And so interesting when you have other countries in the world, even countries that are considered to be Catholic. Um, that, you know, are uh, Ireland as an example, right? Um, you know, or religious, you know, um, it, w when you look that they're going completely the opposite way, which is they're now making, you know, abortion legal uh, throughout the land. And we're seeing that, you know, in, in, in a number of countries, we have seen that, especially over the past few years. It's, it's quite interesting that the United States would be going uh, backward with uh, progressive uh, legislation like re reproductive rights. Yeah. I mean, the, the underlying problem here, I mean, the reason why Republicans are about to have a supermajority on the Supreme Court. So like any of your, if you have any listeners who are 31 years old, if you are 31 years old, you have only lived through one presidential election, the 2004 election, where a Republican won the popular vote. There's only been one election in the last three decades when a Republican won the popular vote. And yet Republicans have done pretty well during that period because of the Electoral College. The first Supreme Court justice in American history to be nominated by a president who lost the popular vote and confirmed by a block of senators who represent ha less than half the country was Neil Gorsuch, Trump's first appointee. Second one was Brett Kavanaugh. And the third is probably going to be Amy Coney Barrett. So like the problem here is that we have a constitutional system that effectively gives extra votes to white conservatives. And, you know, I look at the polls and like what the polls tell me is that um, the idea that abortion should be illegal is a minority view in this country. You know, just like it's a minority view in Canada and Ireland and, you know, lots of other democracies. But um, because our elections are no longer producing democratic results, you know, this minority is able to have an outsized amount of influence. And, you know, 
ultimately what that means is that if Democrats have a really great year in um, in this election, they need to be thinking about big Democratic reforms, admitting new states, and putting in place a, a, big, a big, bold Voting Rights Act, potentially adding additional seats to the Supreme Court so that people That was like, my, next, my, yeah. my, ne- my, ne- my next question. I mean, the Constitution is clear. It doesn't give a number of seats. Is it, you know, uh, oh, we have 30 seconds. I have to, we have to have you back. Can we have you back to talk about Fort Pat? Yeah, yeah, send me an email. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll find a time. I would love it. Ian, thank you for joining us. Once again, our guest has been Ian Milheiser. Um, he is author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. He's a senior correspondent at Vox and on Twitter. Follow him there at iMilheiser. Thank you, Ian. Back after thank this, you. folks. guest in the second half of this hour. Hi, I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for listening on radio, on stream, on podcast, and watching on Periscope, on Twitter, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and every other way that you get us. Good to have you with us. And it's good to have this next guest with us. Uh, Her name is Christine Pelosi. Yes, you know that name. You know our House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, and this is her daughter. But this is a woman who's very successful in her own right, in addition to being the Speaker's daughter. She's an attorney, an author. She's an advocate. She has served as a public interest lawyer in San Francisco and in Washington, D.C. She's chair of the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus and a member of the Democratic National Committee, where she co-founded the DNC Veterans and Military Families Council. She's also a vice chair. She's published three books, traveled to 41 states and four foreign countries conducting call-to-service leadership boot camps. She lives in San Francisco, where I used to live. My husband did his residency there, great city, uh, with her husband. She's Emmy-nominated as a fil- uh, Emmy-nominated filmmaker. Peter Kaufman is her husband, and she has a lovely daughter, Isabella. Actually, a name I was going to name uh, my daughter. I'll tell you a quick, cute story about that, Christine. Of course, we know her, uh, and we love her mom as well, the great House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Please follow Christine on Twitter at SFPelosi. Christine, first of all, I follow you on Twitter and I love your tweets. And may I just say, as somebody who has a Sicilian mother, you are a badass and so is your mother. And I love tough Italian badass broads. So I just love you. I love your mother. I love your tweets and so honored that you're taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you. Well, you're so kind. And I love, you know, one badass Italian woman to another. Um, (laughs) As we all know, uh, you know, tweet at your own risk. But it's Twitter. You got to put yourself out there. And some things people will like, some things they won't like. You know, that's you know, that's the way it is these days. But I do think it's important for us to continue to get our message out as much as possible. I used to do all Facebook and like hardly any Twitter, and then I switched about eight years ago. It was funny because yep. I just realized. I'm going to be saying a lot more than people are ever going to want to see, and they could just mute me on Twitter. But Facebook, you know, it's it's a different deal. And of course, ever since they lied about my mom and put up all those fake, um, you know, deep fake videos and all that, I mean, it's such a joke because the woman doesn't even drink alcohol. And, uh, you know, and yet I'm seeing all of these, uh, you know, pictures of her supposedly intoxicated. Um, so I completely switched my social. Um, and I think that it's important, whatever platform we're on, uh, that we all realize that 
we are on the one hand uh, popping off because it's social media, but on the other hand, um, it is like a tattoo and it does stay with you. So um, I try to balance um, entertainment with uh, some, believe it or not, some degree of self-censorship. <laughs> well, somebody who should self-censor a lot more is our president, Donald Trump. Um, and uh, I want to get to some of the things um, that happened uh, in the town hall last night, just so people know, in case they, they haven't uh, watched, ABC, where Joe Biden had his town hall, had higher ratings and more people watching than NBC, MSNBC, and CNBC combined, where Donald Trump's uh, town hall was broadcast. Uh, last night, one of the things, I don't get why, uh, well, maybe because the Republicans are enjoying the infiltration in their party, but uh, the president refused to denounce QAnon at the NBC town hall last night. Take a listen, and then I would love you to respond. While we're denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true so and disavow QAnon yeah. in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I just told I you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard, but I know nothing they about it. They believe it, it is if a satanic like call run by the deep state. The subject, Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. He may be Why right. not just say it's crazy and not true? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. Uh, Christine, any comment? Because, you know, uh, one thing that, you know, with your mom and her career that you've been exposed to is, you know, politicians and how they answer a tough question. But I think it's pretty easy for a politician to say, I want nothing to do with a, a, a right wing conspiracy organization that touts lies, especially when, when you're talking about such a, such a subject matter. Well, let me just say this as a former child sex assault prosecutor and a 26-year advocate for uh, victims of sexual violence and domestic violence. Um, I do know who QAnon is. I do think that they are taking people's very good faith concerns about, um, you know, what's happening to children, uh, the exposure and dangers uh, for children online, and turning that into a partisan conspiracy theory. And that's, you know, the dangerous part. Um, and, you know, for on the one hand, you know, for the president to say they're fighting pedophilia, and on the other hand to say, I don't know them. Well, you know something because you just described them. I do think that what he should say is, look, I think that these theories are bunk. They shouldn't talk about that. And they should stick to the facts. We want everybody sticking to the facts. That's what he should do, but he's not doing that. And so my concern is, as one who is an advocate in this area, have been in my whole adult life, I feel as though um, really that's where you want a president, you want a national leader to have that microphone. And this is going to be important because there are QAnon nominees for the Congress of the United States. These people could be sworn in and making national decisions come November. It's quite likely. And so that's why I think it's important to say, 
let's have some boundaries here. Let's have some factual based boundaries here and not um, subscribe to, you know, these unfinded, really horrific, horrific um, rumors that are very dangerous. And that, by the way, undercut the work of people like me and people in law enforcement who are trying to stop um, pedophiles and, and people who prey on children online. Speaking of conspiracy theories, um, last night at that same uh, town hall, uh, the president uh, not only talked about, but he, you know, he doubled down and defended on retweeting a baseless conspiracy theory that Vice President Joe Biden had SEAL Team Six killed as part of a Bin Laden cover-up. Even the man who who did kill Bin Laden said, uh, this is bumpkiss. Take a listen and then I'd love your response. Just this week you retweeted to your 87 million followers a conspiracy theory that Joe Biden orchestrated to have SEAL Team 6, the Navy SEAL Team 6, killed to cover up the, the fake death of Bin Laden. Now why would you send a lie like that to your followers? It, you retweeted That was a retweet. That was a, an opinion of somebody. But and that was a retweet. I'll put it out there. People can decide for themselves. That. You're I don't the take president. a position. You're not like someone's crazy uncle who no, can no, just retweet no, no. whatever. Christine? Well, we're going to give Mary Trump the word on that. <laughs> she said, actually, dot, dot, dot. Um, he is someone's, uh, you know, uncle. He's hers. And obviously, he's doing this for attention. He's doing this because he's constantly in a, in a race to erase all things Obama and this is just one more example of his supreme jealousy of Barack Obama that's really taken a sinister, sinister turn and frankly undermines the support he is trying to win back from military families still upset that, um, you know, he called them suckers and losers and then blamed Gold Star families for giving him Corona. Very true. Um, we uh, have a couple of minutes before break. I want you to listen to this and we'll take the break and you can uh, respond on the other side of it. Does that sound fair? Fair. Okay. Um, this is a, a clip of Donald Trump at that uh, NBC town hall um, trying to make it seem that owing more than $400 million is a totally normal thing. Uh, take a listen and we'll take a break and then get your response on the other side, Christine. Thank you. Uh, but this is uh, Trump trying to make that claim. Uh, most of us scratching our heads on that one as well. Personally guaranteed and that will come due in the next four years. The question is, on behalf of voters, who do you owe $421 million okay, first to? Let me answer. What they did is illegal, number one. Also, $400 million compared to the assets that I have, all of these great properties all over the world, and frankly, the Bank of America building in San Francisco. I don't love what's happening to San Francisco. Well, do I hear you right? It sounds like you're saying $400 million isn't that much. the biggest office buildings. But are you, are, you, are you confirming that, yes, you do owe some $400 million? What I'm saying is that it's a tiny percentage of my net worth. That sounds and like, you'll yes. see that soon. Any foreign more. bank, any foreign entity. Not that I know of. Here's the thing. You could clear this up tonight by just releasing your tax returns yourself. I mean, I, that's well, what I'm asking. I think people are just wondering. You know, you're the it. it turned out that I am yes, underwrote it. They IRS actually excuse me. No, no, but you the IRS says that doesn't stop you from releasing. We will be right back. Don't go away. There are next door neighbors, and you can actually see Russia from 
from land here in Alaska. She might not be able to see Russia from her backyard, but she's no dummy. Leslie Marshall, she can talk politics, and she actually is smarter than a fifth grader. That's the boss, Bruce Springsteen, who said if Donald Trump wins re-election, he's moving to Australia. Uh, We are back with our guest and glad to have her with us today, kindly pulled over uh, to be on the program, Christine Pelosi, attorney, author, and advocate. Uh, We, as I said, uh, she has served as a public interest lawyer in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., chair of the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus, a member of the Democratic National Committee, and she co-founded the DNC Veterans and Military Families Council, where she is a vice chair. Follow her on Twitter at SF Pelosi. Uh, Good to uh, have you holding. Thank you for uh, coming back, Christine. Uh, Before the break, I played a clip of uh, Trump at the NBC town hall trying to make it seem like owing more than 400 million is totally a normal thing. Huge disconnect when you have so many Americans out of work, so many people uh, who are struggling and people struggling, not just not having jobs, but people struggling with this pandemic, with day-to-day life and losing loved ones from this virus. Well, that's really true, Leslie, and it's so unfortunate that the president didn't even bother doing debate prep. Look what happened to Chris Christie the last time he did, but, uh, you know, hospitalized with coronavirus. But the fact is he should have done some prep work on this. I, I think that what we're seeing over and over again and what we're hearing is a president to whom people cannot say no. They can't say no for long. Uh, when they do, they start doing that John Kelly face plant around him when he's talking in public, and then they're... Uh, you know, they're they're out of the loop. The fact of the matter is, we know that Donald Trump owes $421 million to Deutsche Bank. That's not an issue. What his issue is, who put in a good word for him to get that loan? And how does he intend to pay it back when it comes due next year? Those are the two questions that we have. And if $400 million loan is only a fraction of his net worth, then he should have said, and I'm paying it off because who wants to carry debt? Most of us don't even like drowning in credit card debt. Now you want right. to tell me that that having $421 million in debt is, is not something that weighs on you, is not something that would subject you to a national security risk of being bribed? What if somebody says, hey, we'll take care of that debt for you. Just sell our countries, uh, you know, some... Uh, nuclear secrets or some nuclear arms or look the other way when we butcher a journalist with a bone saw or whatever it, the offer might happen to be. That is the reason that, that people in national security, and I say this as someone who has a degree in foreign service from Georgetown University, served in the Clinton Gore administration, had, as you mentioned, co-founded the DNC Veterans and Military Families Council, have worked in advocacy with people in national security for years. And the fact of the matter is, some people don't get vetted for government jobs if they carry a great degree of debt. And with all of us um, uh, as, as a country looking at the issues of crippling student loan debt and credit card debt and looking for ways to bring that down in order to free people to be able to serve their communities or serve in government, no one with $400,000 in debt would get a government job, much less $400 million. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, let's switch over to the uh, other guy, the Democratic nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, he has been accused by Trump and Republicans of uh, wanting to increase taxes on the middle class. And actually, he spoke on ABC at the town hall last night about quite the opposite, 
Here's Joe Biden detailing his plan for middle class tax cuts at that ABC town hall. Um, this one's a little bit longer, so take a deep breath and uh, we'll listen. And then uh, I would love to get uh, your take um, on the other side of this as well, Christine, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden detailing his plan for the middle class tax cuts. Trump tax cuts, about one point three trillion of the two trillion dollars in his tax cuts went to the top one tenth of one percent. That's what I'm talking about eliminating, not all the tax cuts that are out there. And by the way, if you just take a look, we reduced the corporate tax rate from 35 percent. And Democrats and Republicans who were in office thought it should come down to 28 percent. He reduced it to 21 percent. You have 91 out of every of the Fortune 500 companies not paying a single solitary penny. If you raise the corporate tax just back to 28 percent, which is a fair tax, you'd raise one trillion three hundred billion dollars by that one act. If you made sure the people making over 400 grand paid what they did in the Bush administration, 39.6 percent, you would raise another uh, 92 billion dollars. So you can raise a lot of money to be able to invest in things that can make your life easier, make you change your standard of living by making sure you have affordable health care, by making sure you're in a situation where you're able to send your kid to school. And if you have a student debt, you can deal with it, making sure that you're your home, you can pay your mortgage. You got 20 million people right now. Mr. President, let me press you on that, though. Sure. You're going to raise the corporate tax. You're going to raise taxes on the wealthy. Is it wise to do even that when the economy is as weak as it is right now? Another 900,000 people. That's, that's a great question. Today. Moody's did a detailed analysis of my tax plan and my economic plan. They said, I will in four years, Moody's, Wall Street, said I will create 18.6 million new jobs, good paying jobs, number one. Number two, and I'll increase, the GDP will grow by a trillion dollars more than it would under Trump and seven million more jobs than under Trump. And the reason is when you allow people to get back in the game and have a job, everything moves. Everything moves. Right now, you got the opposite. You had last year, during, during this pandemic, you had the wealthiest billionaires in the nation. They made an, a, another $700 billion. $700 billion. He talks about a V-shaped recovery. It's a K-shaped recovery. If you're on the top, you're going to do very well. And if you're in the bottom, or you're in the middle or the bottom, your income is coming down. You're not getting a raise. The reason why I'm so optimistic about economic recovery, more than I've ever been, is we have these four crises happening all at once, and one helps the other. For example, we're going to invest a great deal of that money into infrastructure and into a green infrastructure. We're going to put 500,000 charging stations on new highways we're building and old highways we're building, made in America. If you actually insist that, whatever that product is, made in America, including the material that goes into the product, we, it's estimated we're going to create somewhere between another four and six million jobs just by doing that. And just by doing that, when you have Moody's and you have Goldman Sachs who are saying that your plan uh, is better, I scratch my head as a voter when you look at what is most important to voters, Christine, and the economy is number one, whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, or don't want to be affiliated uh, with any political organization, um, I'm surprised the country is um, so, still so split between these two candidates when just on that issue alone, 
Joe Biden's plan uh, to help the middle class and to help this nation economically has been touted by Wall Street as better for individual fam- individuals, families, and, and this nation. Uh, would love your take. Well, that's the challenge for Joe Biden, isn't it? In the next 440 hours that we have left to cast our ballots in this election is to get his economic message out to people and to ha- turn down the noise of, of, of Donald Trump's chaos theory. You know, I tried a fair number of cases um, in the San Francisco uh, court system. And, you know, it was always the same thing. Uh, you know, when we had a strong case, uh, the other side would always want to talk about anything about our case, right? And do the courtroom antics or get us, uh, you know, throw us off our message and, and, and have us talking about other things. Donald Trump wants us talking about him. He wants us uh, using his language and his framing of the issues and uh, his concerns. The media is, is uh, conditioned to have a horse race. So they'll both sides everything. Um, and therefore, it is incumbent upon the challenger, <laughs> it's incumbent upon the challenger to the president to say to people, not only uh, should he be hired, Joe Biden be hired, but also this is why it's better for you and your family. And to keep going back to that palm card that he has in his pocket that says, here's my deal for you. Because if Joe Biden is talking about the economy, if Joe Biden is talking about healing the health and the soul of our nation, he will win. If he is responding to Donald Trump for the next 444 hours, then he may not win. Because we are a country that is divided along in three Fishers. One is Democrats and Republicans in terms of who voted last time. And then there are those non-voters who I consider to be the swing voters. And if you are swinging between staying home and coming out to vote, then it's the job of the Democrats, it's the job of Joe Biden and of all of us to get out there and say, here's how your life um, can get better under a Biden-Harris administration. And if you're Donald Trump, you want those people staying home so you want to make it so ugly and so awful and so chaotic that people will throw up their hands and say, why bother? So let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about uh, the health of our, of our people, of our justice system, of our planet, and of our economy in the next 444 hours. And then Absolutely. we will win. Absolutely. I I hope we do. Christine, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. Christine Pelosi, attorney, author, and advocate, served as a public interest lawyer in San Francisco and D.C., chair of the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus and a member of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, Like I said, she published three books, traveled to 41 states, four foreign countries, conducting calls of service leadership boot camps. And it's been a pleasure to have her on. Please follow her on Twitter. On Twitter, she is at SFPelosi. Uh, I'm Leslie Marshall, and I hope everyone has enjoyed our two guests today and that you have a wonderful and safe weekend. Wear your masks, social distance, and vote. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC. Not authorized by any candidate. 2020 took a different path than we expected, but it definitely didn't slow our pace. Planet M has helped private and public entities work together to advance the future of mobility technology along a challenging course. 
Working together has been the key to staying on the right path. So whether you're just getting started or already an industry leader, Planet M is your connection to Michigan's mobility ecosystem and our future. If you're ready to make a move with your business, see how we can help at planetm.com slash pure hyphen partnership.